first one is to share a Christmas appropriate, uh, which means Christ-focused series of messages with you. The second is to close out our 2022 theme, which was Be the Church. Why? Because any focus on the Lord Jesus Christ is saying something to us about who we're supposed to be as the church. We are supposed to follow him. We are supposed to be conformed to his image. We are supposed to be like him. So as we, as we look at who Jesus is, as we consider this Christmas series on, on who Christ is, um, uh, and as we, as we share together a series of messages that is Christ-focused, we should also be saying something to ourselves, uh, aspirational, something aspirational. Lord, help me to live this out. Help me to be like Christ in this way. And so it's, a, it's an easy marriage in, in these two goals. It's an easy marriage. To be the church is to aspire to be like Christ. To focus on who Christ is, is to give ourselves things to aspire to be as the church. And so that's what we're going to be doing throughout this month of December. The theme of this series is found in uh, John chapter 1, and I'm going to ask you to turn there. It's not our text for this morning, but it is the theme for, our, uh, for this series, and um, and I want to share with you this overarching theme for this month. The Gospel of John, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, and then also verse 14. This Christmas series, John 4, uh, that's not correct up there. John, John 1, um, uh, 1 through 4, and verse 14. That's not anyone back there's fault, that's my fault. Um, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Verse 14, And the Word became flesh, and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, I want to focus on, on what it means to, uh, what it means that the Word became flesh. What it means that the Word became flesh. And I just want to say up front that there's a lot of mystery here. The church has sought to understand the dual nature of Christ throughout the history of the church. What it means that he was fully God and fully man. We have, we have wrestled with this truth in part because, well, um, because we human beings are driven to understand things. And it seems that the more impossible it is for us to understand, the more bent we are to try to understand it. The fact of the matter is we're never going to get to the bottom of this one. We're not going to get to the bottom of this one. But the church has endeavored to understand this in the best ways that we possibly can. There's a lot of mystery here, but I want to look at the word 
at, at what it means that the Word became flesh or the Word in the flesh in four ways. I want to just cover some basics to start with this morning. What are we talking about when we talk about the Word becoming flesh? Well, um, the first thing is this, that the Word equals God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, in other words, Jesus Christ, refers to the Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity. Now, um, as soon as we bring this up, we have to acknowledge that we're talking about something that, uh, that is indeed mystery. We don't understand, we don't understand completely what we're talking about this, this morning. The Trinity is itself a mystery to us. Is itself a mystery to us. But the Scripture proclaims that the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ, the, the passage that we just read, became flesh. It tells us that without, without naming Him, later in the chapter, early in the book, John looks at the Lord Jesus and identifies Him as the one he's talking about. But... But the, the passage that we just read tells us that in the beginning, the Word was with God and the Word was God, that nothing was made uh, uh, apart from Him, and that everything that is came into being because of Him. And then John, uh, John 1.14 says, the Word was made flesh. In other words, this person who had eternally been with God and was God became a human, became man. It's a pretty remarkable thing to think about God becoming man, taking upon himself human form. So first of all, the word we're talking about, God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. We're talking about Jesus Christ. The second thing, the second basic to notice here is that there are three statements that are affirmed by the church. Three statements. Don't ask me to explain them. Don't ask really anyone to explain them completely. We, we do our best. We use analogies. But these three statements are true and, and, and we can't fully wrap our head around them because what we're dealing with here is the nature of what it is to be God. And, and by definition, you and I not being God can't relate. We just can't relate. But here's the three statements that the church affirms. The first one is that God is three persons. Now, there's, it would be a long, it would be a long, uh, process to, to, to go about establishing the three persons of the Trinity. There are very clear ways to do this. It's just, it's just obvious in Scripture that there are three beings that are described as God in Scripture, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But this is a really good summary verse, Matthew 28, 19, uh, that we are to baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost right? That it's a summary statement of who God is. So we, we have this, this truth that God manifests himself in three persons, Father, Son, 
Holy Spirit. The second statement that the church affirms is that each person in the Godhead is fully God. Each person is fully God. Now, for the sake of time and for the sake of space, I left out uh, in in the the scripture references that are listed there, um, each person is fully God. I left out the Father. But let me just say, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4 that we just read, the, the Word was with God and the Word was God is a statement of the divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ, the Word who comes in the flesh, was with God eternally and was God. Now it's interesting, because to be with God, to be with God, seems to denote difference from. But to say He was God is to denote unity and similarity. In other words, he was with God, gives us that Trinitarian concept of God being able to be with God because there's more than one person there, right? And yet, he is God, so he's divine, and he's fully God. We affirm that each person in the Godhead is fully God, is fully God. Acts chapter 5 Verses, uh, verses 3 and 4 is that passage in which um, um, uh, Peter is dealing with Ananias and Sapphira over their, their, uh, their sin. And he says, you have not lied unto man, but unto God. And then he says, because you've lied to the Holy Spirit. You've lied to the Holy Spirit. He, he is specific about the sin as being a sin against the Holy Spirit, and he says, the one you've sinned against is God. So we have these these scriptures that show us that each member of the Trinity is indeed fully God. Now, if you stopped right here, there's all kinds of of things that you could wrestle with, and you could could arrive at all three conclusions, but probably, you, uh, you could arrive at all sorts of conclusions, but probably the thing that makes all of this most difficult and least understandable to us is that while God is three persons and while each person is fully God, the other thing that Scripture teaches us is that there is but one God. And this is why it becomes so hard. How can there be three persons when there is only one God? When there's only one God. How do, we, how do we understand this? How do we account for this? Well, realistically, I think the best we do is use analogies, and all sorts of analogies have been used. Um, I don't know how to explain this. I'm not sure why this is or, or how to account for this. But maybe I can just say it this way. The older I get, the more comfortable I become being able to acknowledge that there's things I can't understand. And in fact, the more welcoming I am of finding mystery in the world. Here's here's what it kind of feels like to me. As a child, my life was full of wonder. 
I then embarked on this plan of trying to figure things out and understand things, and there was very little wonder left in the world. Part of it was the arrogance of thinking I had answers. Part of it was just the loss of innocence of childhood, and the world became explainable, plus it was just a lot of work. And then, and then you get older again, and you start saying, man, I want to recover some of that. I want to recover some of that wonder. And, and you realize that, that the world is more, is more than what you can define. And you start finding something joyful in that, something, something meaningful in that, right? That, that God is bigger than what I'm able to wrap my head around. And I can look at those three statements and say, well, okay, they're supposed to all be true. I'm not sure how they all fit together. I can't totally picture that. And here's how I'm responding. God, I worship you because of it. I worship you because of it. I'm thankful that you're not me. I'm thankful that you're beyond my ability to fully comprehend. I personally find something meaningful in that, find something profound in that, that allows me, helps me to worship. There is but one God. This is affirmed numerous times in Scripture. Okay. So, basics. Thirdly, there are Old Testament, Old Testament examples of, uh, of theophanies, that is, appearances of God, rare but occasional, appearances of God. So a theophany is an appearance of God, theos, the, 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 the word for, for God. Um, but also what we would call a Christophany, which is an Old Testament appearance of Christ. Often under the, the phrase, the angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord, but in various instances we see appearances of the Lord Jesus Christ. Temporary, um, uh, not, certainly not, not permanent, not long-lasting, but times when God manifested himself to human beings in physical form for a brief period of time for a very specific reason. We have these examples. However, God did not come to this earth in any settled form for any amount of time until he came in the person of Jesus Christ. And that's what we're considering uh, throughout, this, throughout this month. Why? Because... What we're told in Scripture is that God is a spirit, that God is a spirit. When he reveals himself to man, uh, to, to human beings, he has to take a form that man can relate to, man can see. Why? Because we don't have the ability to see spirits. Now, this is not hard to explain at all. How many of you know that there are wavelengths of light that we can't see. They're beyond what we can see, right? Our eyes just aren't suited to see certain things. They're not capable of receiving that information. As human beings, we can't see the spirit realm, usually. And for the most part, we should probably be thankful for that because it might be a really confusing and 
somewhat difficult world if we could see two worlds coexisting at the same time. We can't see that realm. God is a spirit, is what we're told in Scripture. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, justice, holiness, goodness, truth, right? This summary statement that the church has affirmed of who God is. God is spirit. It's, it's essentially who he is. Now, here's what's interesting about it is that you and I are created in his image. That is, we are not spirits, but we are spiritual beings, right? I, I'm not a spirit. You can see me. You can touch me. I, I have a physical body, but I do have a spiritual orientation. I do have a spiritual drive. So I'm not a spirit, but I, I'm, I, I have a part of me that relates to the spirit realm. But when it tells us that God was made flesh, that, that the word becomes flesh, I want to focus in this series of messages on four things, four aspects of being human that we see in the life of Jesus, that something is said to us in Scripture about the life of Jesus that ought to transform these four parts of our humanity, what it means for us to be human. I can't relate to him being a spirit, but when he, not, not fully, but when he becomes man, when he becomes man, Scripture says certain things about the Lord Jesus Christ that, that are transformative to how I understand myself. So we're going to look at the incarnation. When the Word became flesh, here's what the four things are. These four things that I want to look at are what it means to have a mind, what it means to have a will, what it means to have emotions, and what it means to have a body. When God becomes flesh, he relates to human beings as rational beings, emotional beings, beings with a choice, with volition, and beings, this one is crazy to me, that how does the hymn writer say it? Tis mystery all, the immortal dies. That he subjects himself to having a body, to having a body, to being confined within a body, a human body for time. That's how we're going to look at this over the next couple of weeks. So let me, let me um, I did know that was going to be a long introduction. Let me just cover this first one, which, which should be probably a series in and of itself, but let me briefly cover this morning the mind of Christ, the mind of Christ, and what this means for us. Well, the obvious text that, that we have to turn to to consider the mind of Christ is Philippians chapter 2, Philippians 2. So this is the text that I want to focus on before we close this morning, Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8. Let me read it to you this morning. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." 
What I just read to you was from the New American Standard. Probably most of you would recognize it more familiarly from the, from the King James. Um, where the King James, uh, the New American Standard says, have this attitude in yourselves. The King James reads, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Let this mind be in you. It's a mindset or an attitude as the New American Standard reads it. I want to focus on this mind of Christ. All right? There's three things in this passage that, that we need to focus on. It's going to take us a minute to get there. Let me set the stage by making a few comments about the human mind. The first one would be what I'll call the, the brain-mind question, the brain-mind question. Um, bear with me. Some of this may be of zero interest to some of you. I... I'm one of those geeks that, that knows very little about some things, but likes to dabble and likes to try to understand things. Um, neuroscientists are, are wrestling with the, the brain-mind question. It's a, fascinating, it's a fascinating question. It's bound up in things like consciousness, awareness, self-awareness. It's bound up in all kinds of questions about how we function as human beings. I cannot prove this, obviously, because, you know, when I'm researching something, I'm reading what people say. I'm not in a room with all the neuroscientists in the world pulling them, asking asking them questions, but, um, but it has been observed that many neuroscientists claim that mind and brain are the same thing, even though the evidence doesn't necessarily point that way. And the reason is because much of science is driven by something called eliminative materialism, which is everything has to be explained in physical terms, material terms, the, the biology of something, and if you understand everything as having its source in biology, it eliminates the spiritual realm. It eliminates anything that is not biologically driven. And so they would say something like, well, the mind is just a function of the brain. It's not a separate thing from the brain. It's not different from the brain. It's just the functioning of the brain. Your mind is really just the firing of electrical impulses and chemical reactions going on in your brain. Um, that's, that's not a scientific statement as much as it is a philosophical statement. We know that those things happen in the brain, but we don't know that that's why mind exists, right? That's the presupposition that there has to be a physical explanation for everything. Let me just quickly say that there's some real problems with this view, some real problems with this view, just to run through a quick of, uh, uh, three of them quickly. The first one is the problem of agency. Listen, if all you are as a human being is the functioning of electrical impulses and chemical reactions in your brain, you don't really choose anything. I was listening to NPR a while back, 
and they had on this neuroscientist that was explaining some of this stuff. And this person said something like this. Every time you move your arm, something happens in your brain first. And we've gotten the technology to be able to figure out the fact that when this part of your brain operates in this way, the next thing that's going to happen is your arm is going to move. And then he said this. You think you're choosing to move your arm. You're not. Your arm only moves because your brain tells it to. I sat there thinking to myself, that's a really weird thing to say. All the science shows us is that something happens up here before something happens out here. To make it sound like I'm not in control of what this hand does is a very bizarre conclusion to arrive at from the fact that something happens up here before something happens with this. The issue is one of agency. Do I have nothing but chemical, electrical firings up here, or am I a human being with choices to make, right? So this is a, the issue of agency is a huge issue. I'm not going to spend any time on the second one because the second one is, is, is very complicated. But there's a question about rationality here. Are thoughts real at all? If all they are is chemical firings, I mean, the fact that you and I are talking right now is a bizarre, bizarre thing. There's really no way of knowing for sure if anything real is happening or anything rational is happening. Why is it that my words should be hearable by you and have any, any sense at all, any meaning at all, if all it is is chemicals happening in my brain and chemicals happening in your brain? How is it that we're talking about the same ideas? It's just kind of weird that our chemicals are aligning in this way, that we're having a conversation, right? There's problems with this, but maybe the most, the, the biggest problem, the biggest obvious problem is one of responsibility. How do you attribute liability to anybody for their actions if all they are is responding to the firing of electrical impulses and chemical impulses in their brain? In other words, if I said to you, you know, I'm really sorry I punched you in the face. I didn't choose to do that. My hand only moved because the chemicals in my brain did something and the electrical impulses fired and the next thing I knew, my hand went flying and hit you in the nose. You can't hold me responsible for that. You get the idea, right? I don't mean to mock it, I don't mean to belittle it. But the question of responsibility, of liability, of how do we understand human responsibility for behavior if we're trying to say that all we are is biological robots driven by electrical impulses and chemical interactions in our brain, how are we liable? Why should we be liable? It's a real question. So there's this problem. I should say what is obvious is that the Bible perspective is this, that your minds are real and they're under your purview. Please hear this. What you think about is your choice. Now, let me pause here for a second. Can I ask how many of you have had an intrusive thought in the past week? You've had thoughts that have just come in like this, that you weren't sure where they came from, right? 
Maybe they were from events in the past or from something you watched or for something you heard or whatever, right? But how many of you know that you can choose what you do with those thoughts? That there are some things you can choose to go down that road and meditate upon. Or you can choose to say, I will refuse to think about that. Now, can I ask you a question? How many of you have ever had a real fight with those kinds of thoughts? For a whole variety of reasons. Amen? We human beings are complicated creatures. And there's this whole thing that goes on inside of us when a thought suggests itself. Because it's got a whole history worth of baggage associated with it. It might be tied up with where we came from, with messages we've heard, with sins we've committed, with things we've done, with things that we said yes to or no to in our distant past. And all of this comes together and presents itself to us in the moment. Here, think about this. Think about this. It's an amazing thing how fast that process becomes. When things that maybe were at one time like well, I think about it and I struggle with it. We, we, we can have this where, where a thought suggests itself and we're immediately projected into a course of behavior. Why? Because, because it's like a, a rut that has gotten worn on the, on the highway of our minds. And we're so used to thinking about things in certain ways that all that has to happen is just a little suggestion. And next thing you know, we're 10 miles down the road someplace wondering, how did I get here? Right? You've heard me tell the silly story about, about, um, uh, about my penmanship. I had a comment made to me when I was a child why can't you write more neatly? And every time I write now, I, I got to hand off my writing to someone else, the thought of, what are they going to think of me based upon my penmanship? You think to yourself, that's a ridiculous thing to think. You can't, you can't, you can't ascribe the value of a person to the quality of their penmanship. But isn't it bizarre? That just the suggestion of a thought is something that can take us to a place that is five miles where all of a sudden my identity is in question because of how I write. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Right? We have those things. Why? Because thoughts, ideas are powerful things. Please hear this. The enemy knows how to use this against us. He has incredible skill in using thoughts, using our minds against us. The Bible view, however, is that our minds are real. You're not just a chemical or electrical impulse machine. You are someone with responsibility to do something about the thoughts in your mind. All of us have a responsibility to guard the thoughts of our mind the mind-brain question. Secondly, this is coming to something that I hope will be really meaningful for you. Keep, stick with me through the tough part of this here for a minute. Second one I call the have-need question. The have-need question. That is, that Scripture says certain things that might seem to contradict or, or at least be difficult to reconcile on some levels. So, for example, 
In 1 Corinthians 2, verse 16, the Apostle Paul says, we have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. Now let me just pause. How many of you within the last week have had thoughts that you just say to yourself, could not possibly have come from the mind of Christ? Can you raise your hands really high? 100% didn't come from the mind of Christ. Amen? Didn't come from there. Okay? Paul, what are you talking about? We have the mind of Christ. By the way, he was writing this to the Corinthians. When you read that letter, you're left kind of thinking to yourself, you know, if you're going to say you got the mind of Christ, you probably should have picked a better church to say that to. <laughs> because that church wasn't doing so great. Right? Those people were filled with problems. Tell them they've got the mind of Christ. I got issues with that, right? But he tells them, you got the mind of Christ. However, in Romans 12, 2, and in Ephesians 4.23, the Apostle Paul writes about the fact that, that, that we need to be renewed in our minds. That we need to be renewed in our minds. That we need the mind of Christ. He says that our minds need to be renewed. And so the question you might ask yourself is, well, which one is it, Paul? I have the mind of Christ or my mind needs to be renewed into the mind of Christ. Which one is it, Paul? Do we have the mind of Christ, or do we need the mind of Christ? And the answer is quite simply both. Both are true. Both are true. We receive, listen to this, we receive the mind of Christ the moment we're born again by the invading presence of the Holy Spirit. He brings to us the mind of Christ. Problem is, we still have the inborn presence of our natural mind that has been educated and developed in some very unchristlike ways. So, in a very real sense, you and I as Christians are two minds living in one body. Yeah, we have the mind of Christ. And yeah, our minds need to be renewed. By the way, how many of you were able to say, thank God I had the mind of Christ, because if I'd have been left just to the dictates of that old mind I used to have, who knows where I'd be, right? It's a good thing I have another mind going on inside of me, right? We still have the inborn presence of our natural mind that has been educated and developed in an antichrist world, but we have this new mind, the mind of Christ that is present within us. And here's what happens, is that very often those two minds come into conflict with one another. And in a moment, I have some choices to make. There are some things that are very natural to me, some responses that are very natural to me. If I just cherry pick out of Scripture some really easy examples, it would be, here would be one. If someone smites you on, on the right cheek, turn to him also the left. There's not a thing in my natural mind that says that's reasonable. And yet somehow, in a moment of time, when someone does something that is offensive, insulting, hurtful to me, I immediately have two competing thoughts that present themselves to me. One is the mind of Christ that I have, which is to forgive and to turn the other cheek. The other one, depending on how bad the insult is, 
is something like feel sorry for yourself or hold it against them for a later time or punch them in the nose, right? And I wrestle between what these two minds are telling me to do. There's a, there's a battle between them. The fact that there's a battle at all means that I have the mind of Christ. The fact that my mind needs, needs to be renewed is that this mind needs to start overcoming this mind so that this one gets changed and does the kinds of things it should. I need to learn to live out the mind of Christ. As Christians, listen, one of my favorite ways of saying this, and I wish I could remember who I read it from so I could give him credit for it. One old Christian author used to say, the Christian life is all about becoming who we already are. It's all about becoming who we already are. I have the mind of Christ. Now my mind has to be renewed. I am the righteousness of God. Now I've got to learn to live righteously. Okay? That it's all about becoming who we already are. For most of us, there's an identity crisis. We don't know who we already are. Once we settle who we already are, we can do the becoming thing in a much more peaceful way. All right, Lord, I'm going to become because this is who I am, right? That that's the issue that needs to be settled. We have the mind of Christ, but now we have to be renewed because that's the mind that needs to grow and be allowed to dominate, okay? Are you with me or you're totally, we okay? All right. Here's the importance with all that, with all that, that uh, background. Let me give you three thoughts from from uh, uh, Philippians about the mind of Christ. What was the mind of Christ that is recommended to us in this passage? When Paul writes to us, have this attitude or let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus, can I just pause and ask you, how many of you would conceptually be willing to live from the mind of Christ even if living from the mind of Christ was very different from how you live thinking right now? Are you willing? If it means changing the way I think about things, how many of us are willing to let the mind of Christ transform us? Because we have deeply ingrained ways of thinking. And the question becomes, are we willing to allow the life of Jesus, the reality of who Jesus is, are we willing to let that transform us? It's, it's I, I like the way the King James reads this verse. It's, let this mind be in you. That was also in Christ Jesus. You're going to have to let it happen. You've got a choice here, okay? What was the mind of Christ? How does Paul describe it? Well, here's the way he describes it. First of all, the mind of Christ was one of rights relinquished. Can I just pause here for a second? How many of you know that we think a lot of our rights? Human beings. How many of you would also agree 
that American human beings have special reasons to think about their rights. It's a very complicated issue for us. We have a strong orientation toward our rights and the preservation of our rights. What we see in the mind of Christ was a willingness to relinquish his rights. Let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus. Listen to this. I'll read it from the New American Standard. Who, although he existed in the form of, of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, I'm God. As God, I've got the right to be regarded as God. I'm equal to the Father. And yet, what we're told here is that for Jesus to bring salvation to you and me, he had to give up his right to be God. The right to be equal with God had to be relinquished in order for him to become a man and to die on a cross for you and me. He had to give up his privilege, give up his right. Listen, think about it just purely in terms of geography for a second. He's in heaven. And he's got a choice to come down here, but he's going to have to give up all the glories of what heaven are in order for him to come to this earth and become one of us. Well, I've got all these privileges here. I'm God. What it says is that he gives up his right to be equal with God in order to come here. It's a relinquishing of rights. It's a voluntary giving up of what I have a legitimate claim to, what I have a legitimate right to. Listen, I don't know how many ways I can apply this, but let me just say it this way. Um, we have a very strong orientation around the idea that if I earned it, it's mine. It's mine. Do you realize that the, that the concept of tithing in Scripture can be turned into something that it's not necessarily, that the idea of tithing is that I have to recognize that there's only one reason that I have the ability to gain wealth, and it's because God gave me life today. <coughs> everything I am and everything I have is His. It's not mine. It's not mine. It's built into the system as a reminder that, that it's not mine. This concept of stewardship is I'm responsible to manage that which God gives me the ability to gain. I'm a steward of it. I'm a steward of it. We, we like to think in terms of this being, of things being mine, to do with what I choose to do with, when the fact of the matter is we are stewards of everything that God gives to us. I don't really have a right to any of it. 
it's all his to be used for his glory. Man, that is a change of mind that is profound. That's profound. Rights we relinquished. Listen, this is a huge battle for us. Could I just pause here for a second? Please hear this. If you have enough self-control and self-restraint in you to be able to do this, the next time that you get into a, what's the, what's the Christian term for a fight? Next time you get into a disagreement with your spouse, ask yourself this question. Is there a right I'm holding on to that I will not give up right now? When I start thinking about how this works, James says things like this, from where do wars and fightings come from among you? Do they not come from your own lusts that war in your members? That is your own desires? Well, I want this. I've got a right to it. I'm going to demand it. How many times have I kept a conversation going that didn't need to keep going because of one thing? This is one thing that's personal to me. I want to be understood, no matter how wrong I am. I want somebody, I want you to understand my perspective. And by George, we're going to have this out until you understand my perspective. When if I had just given up my right to be understood, the whole thing could have been done a lot sooner. Right? We have rights. We have rights that we cling to so tightly. It's a huge battle for us. We feel our rights. We hate strongly the, an, an imposition or an intrusion or an injustice that violates our rights. Jesus voluntarily took his rights and surrendered them, gave them up. The second thing we see in the mind of Christ is humility embraced. Humility embraced. That is, that when he gave up his right to equality with God, he embraced the form of a man that happened to have been a slave. A slave. In other words, he did not come, his own words, to be served, but to serve. He relinquished his rights and he embraced humility. He embraced humility. Please hear this. To give up your right is not the same thing as putting others above yourselves. It's not the same thing. But that's our calling. To not only say, I give up my rights, but to say, I place myself at your service. I give myself to you. And this is, this is an outrageously Christian mentality that does not come natural to us as human beings. The third thing that we see in this passage is that he embraced obedience. Obedience lived. Even if it meant death on the cross. I give up my rights, I embrace humility, I'm here to serve, and I'm here to serve even if it means that I have to obey to the point of dying. Because, my brothers and sisters, this ends up being the ultimate question that all of us deal with. Can I say this quickly? Uh, can I say this uh, um, just very briefly? And, and, and I'll acknowledge that maybe sometimes it's more complicated than others, but 
Most, most marriage problems, many marriage problems, most interpersonal problems that persist and destroy people are there because people just don't want to die. They don't want to die. They're going to fight for their right. They're going to fight for their perspective. They're going to fight for what they want because we just don't want to let go because letting go is a form of dying, a giving up of what I don't want to give up. It's hard for us as human beings, but what we see in the Lord Jesus is one who comes to serve to the point of death. You see, to, to obey this way is to give up your right to self-determination. It's, I'm here to do the will of my Father. I will obey. If the mind of Christ rules in us, obedient self-surrender is exactly how we will live. It's exactly how we will live. All right, I have to close, and I'm going to close with this. This message all ends up being about one thing, and that is this. Self is very strong in us. Can I tell you honestly, I love myself? Like, if we're honest, this is part of what it means to be human beings. Something like this. I pledge allegiance to myself. <laughs> and to my kingdom. <laughs> right? We love ourselves. He's, ah, you don't understand. I really don't like myself. Just, just think about how hard you fight for yourself. And you'll realize how much we really do, how much we protect ourselves, how much we defend ourselves, how much we build up little walls to make sure bad things don't happen to ourselves. We're deeply in love with self, deeply committed to self. Our relationships show it. Our arguments show it. The mind of Christ is profoundly different. It's profoundly different. In the incarnation, when God becomes flesh, he does it in a way that shows this. I will give up my rights. I will willingly humble myself. And I'll do so obediently to the point of death. And let me remind you how the passage starts. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now, I got to just, uh, got to finish, but I'm going to say it this way. I have lots of ways of avoiding that issue. Because a right, after all, is a right, and I can come up with an argument why I should be able to stand up for it. The point is this, I have to ask myself, in what ways and in how many places in my life do I have the privilege of demonstrating the mind of Christ? Where have I, where can I show that the mind of Christ is operating in me? That I relinquish my rights to myself, that I embrace the idea 
of humble service and that I do so under direction obediently, even to the point of self-sacrifice for another. Where does that happen? How does that happen? My brothers and sisters, this is the mind that's supposed to be in us. This is the mind that's supposed to be in us. It's a very different mind from that which the world tells us is reasonable. But I'll tell you what, it will transform, it will transform the way you live with people around you. It will transform the way you live with people around you. I don't know where you should live this out. All I can do is kind of picture the places in my life where I have this agony of wrestling with an issue. Well, I'm a husband. My wife is supposed to submit. My children are supposed to obey. My this, my that. And I start to realize after a while that it's just really easy to put me at the center of all things and justify it in one way or another. And to ask myself, what does it mean to let go of all these things and just represent Christ to the people around me? What does that mean? What does that look like? You'll have to fill in the blanks. You'll have to consider where that comes into play. But to ask yourself, how does the mind of Christ demonstrate itself in my life is a profound question. How, where does my thinking need to change so that I can be more like Jesus in my world? I'm going to ask if our ushers would come and I'm going to ask if our musicians would come back. And as we receive communion this morning, in these last few moments, I want you to focus on what it means that the mind of Christ took him from heaven to the relinquishing of all of his rights, his privileges as God, puts him in the, in the position in the form of a servant, being obedient even to the point of death, and then maybe to ask ourselves, what would that look like in our lives on a daily basis? How do we demonstrate the mind of Christ? How do we show the mind of Christ? Would you focus on that as we sing this morning and as we prepare for communion today? Thank you.